Uh, we are starting a new series today called Ancient History, uh, the earliest chapters of God's story. And uh, some of you probably are thinking, wait a minute, didn't we already get the earliest one done? Because yeah, we did Genesis last fall, and uh, we're actually going to start Exodus today, and we're going to go all the way through to the end of Deuteronomy. We're going to do the whole uh, Pentateuch, not today, uh, over the next about 16 weeks, we're going to be going through this series. Uh, it will be sort of an aggressive pace by which we're going to go, uh, but the series is going to focus primarily on the life of Moses one of the most influential figures in the Old Testament. And in addition, we're going to see several foreshadowings in the Pentateuch that point us to the gospel and that bridge us from the old covenant uh, into our new covenant reality. This is actually kind of an interesting thing. Today, uh, when we start in Exodus, uh, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, if many of you know the story. And it actually says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. And, and it struck me that it's just an interesting thing, just before we started our services uh, this morning, isn't it interesting to think that if God can, in the days of Moses, remember his covenant with those who had gone before and then deliver his people out of that, how much greater would we be able today to come to the communion table knowing that God remembers his covenant with us through Christ? That's new covenant living. And this is the same God that we serve. And so it sort of encourages me as we think about an old covenant history and then into our new covenant reality. Uh, several of you have commented on using the bookmarks. So we still have, a, we have one of those reading plan bookmarks thing at the information desk. I didn't bring up one up here, but you probably know what they look like. If you wanna actually read through all of the Pentateuch while we are preaching through this. Uh, you're welcome to do that. You're encouraged to do that, uh, to get yourself in God's Word and really get a good grasp of where it's going. We are not going to preach every chapter and verse. That would probably take us 50 years, uh, but we're going to take, uh, take you through this journey and we'll in include uh, and encourage you to read through along with us. All right, so new journey begins today. How many of you are ready to go? Say yes if you're ready to go. All right, that sounded encouraging and ready. Uh, Exodus chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. I'll do a little bit of the background from Exodus 1, uh, but we're going to start our reading in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to read through several verses today, so keep your finger here in Exodus chapter 2. Let's begin by reading the first 10 verses, and it reads this way. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, and then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of 
the water. May God have blessing to the reading of his word. Keep your finger there in Exodus 2. We're going to read several more uh, verses today. Uh, the title of the message is Origin Story because I figured this is kind of the origin story. We're going to follow the life of Moses for many, many, many weeks, but this is kind of where the whole thing begins. And to understand it well, you've got to get a little bit of an understanding of the backdrop, which for some of you, you would say, sure, we know this. Some of you, maybe you don't. Uh, Genesis, when we ended the, the series last fall, we ended with God's people, God's family, coming down to the life of Joseph. Joseph has arisen to power in Egypt, and God has used his sovereign plan in action, has used this season to save his family from starvation. So it's really quite good news when at the end of Genesis, God's people, God's family are invited to come down and to live in Egypt, and it's the sign of God's deliverance over them. But time has gone by, and a new pharaoh arises who becomes an oppressor of the growing Israelite people. And so intimidated is this new pharaoh at the, the blessing of God on these people that they're, they're spreading like wildfire, and they're multiplying quickly, and they're becoming this strong nation within a nation that he begins to oppress them, to enslave them, to sort of tamp down the work that God is essentially doing. I don't know if they know that, but God's doing a work, and he's trying to tamp that work down. Uh, it gets so bad that by the time of Moses' birth, the male babies are being taken from their homes and their mothers and thrown into the Nile River. Um, so this is just a, this, it's a almost genocidal kind of act um, that, that Moses is now born into. Now, I want you to notice just a couple of things. First of all, a couple of things about Pharaoh and a couple of things about Egypt, uh, Israel when we think about just understanding the backstory. Think about Pharaoh, if you will, as the epitome of the human spirit. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from Tim Mackey in a moment, but just sort of understand this. Note that they don't even tell you which Pharaoh it was. And commentators have said, we think that's actually deliberate because the point of this showdown that is coming is not so much this one king or one ruler or even these few rulers against the work of God, but it is a way of being that is represented by Pharaoh. We also can see this with Israel. Israel is not just a family and not just a group, but this is the source of God's blessing to the world. If you remember the covenant of Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abram, I'm going to make you a people, I'm going to make you a nation, and those who bless you, I'm going to bless, those who curse you, I'm going to curse, and all the world will be blessed through you. That was the covenant with Abraham, and so now Israel, representing the, the blessing of God, has now come under the oppression of a different kind of world order. And this is actually the nature of spiritual warfare. When you think about it, that the devil, I love Bob's back there, and Bob McQueen is back, and he always tells me, you know, the devil doesn't attack dead churches, the devil doesn't attack dead people, uh, which I, I've come to, to find to be very true and to be words to live by in many ways. There, there is an element of spiritual warfare that we actually see on display right here, whether you saw that very closely or not. The Israelites are not just the Israelites, this is the source of by which God is going to bless the whole world, and now they have come under the oppression of this other world order. Now, Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, he asks this question, why isn't Pharaoh named? The author does not wait for us or want us to focus, this is his answer, the author does not want us to focus on a single king, 
So we don't know if this is Tut, we don't know if this is Ramses, the second or the third. We don't, we don't know which one of the many pharaohs that, that were recorded throughout history or which ones, uh, but here's what we see. Rather, the author wants us to see Pharaoh as an archetype of the pattern of human rebellion that began in the garden and culminated in Babylon. This king or sequence of kings is the epitome of human evil. He embodies the strange and tragic turn the human heart can take when one person or society places their own values and well-being above another person or society. Now think about this. From the garden to Babylon, if you remember in the book of Genesis, we deliberately went back to the Tower of Babel because that is such a pivotal place where you actually see, what, what do you see the message of the Tower of Babel? We're gonna make a name for ourselves, and the whole world is gonna see how great we are. This is the anti-God state of mind. And Egypt is the new Babel. Egypt is the forerunner for the many things that we're gonna be seeing all throughout scripture. So you actually see this very important showdown beginning to see. Then here's the continued quote from Tim Mackey. He says this, Pharaoh is what happens when an entire nation redefines good and evil apart from God's wisdom. You get an Egypt building its wealth and security on the backs of an abused, oppressed, and enslaved Israel. So now made to work as slaves, their lives become bitter. They begin to cry out to God amidst very terrible conditions. By the end of Exodus 1, we see the baby boys being thrown uh, into the Nile, taken from their Israelite mothers and families. Uh, what a tragedy uh, that, that uh, Moses is born into. But today, as we look at this origin story, note that this is the origin story of a leader who by human standards should not have made it to his first birthday. And yet we see God's plans overcoming. Uh, two points that I want to primarily focus on with you. The first is this. There is the overcoming of impossible circumstances. She places this baby in a basket, puts pitch and tar on the thing so it can stay somewhat weatherproof or waterproof, and then she leaves, the mother leaves the child there. Uh, the wonder of this story, first of all, just totally remarkable. I, I don't know about you, but like as I've dwelt on this and I've, I've read and I've thought through, I mean, we know the story. I've heard it a hundred times. I've read it probably literally a hundred times in my life, if not more. And yet, I am captivated by the wonder of this story. We have a baby surviving a rafting trip down one of the most dangerous rivers on the planet. If you want some dangerous rivers, you could visit the Congo River in Africa, the Boiling River in Peru is definitely on the top five, uh, but the Nile River is right up there with them. It's one of the scariest places you could imagine to leave a baby. I mean, just I'm gonna ask you to sort of think about this in real time, the reality of what this origin story entails. In the Nile River, there are creatures like this that are prowling on the banks. That is a Nile crocodile. That male, uh, male crocodiles grow between 10 and 14 feet long. They are apex predators. They are, they are opportunistic, and they eat anything. And if you're not worried about crocodiles, uh, you've got to worry about snakes. How many of you are, are fans of snakes? You, you like a good snake-catching adventure? Some of you? Good. It's good. I, I like snakes. They're good. I don't like the snakes in the Nile River. They got Egyptian cobras, they got banded cobras, they've got the black mamba. I think that's the scariest snake in the world. That thing's just terrifying. I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to that stuff. My kids make fun of me. Uh, my kids tell me that 
the commercials that I think are funny about becoming your parents. They think it's funny in a whole different way, and I'll just leave it at that. So you got venomous snakes. You've got, you know, one of the things when you say, like, what do you really need to avoid when you're hanging out at the Nile, the Nile River? One of the big ones is mosquitoes. They're like the perfect delivery system for all of the worst diseases you don't want to catch. You know what I mean? So mosquitoes actually is a real problem. It's a real thing. And yet, here's a little fun fact. Probably the worst animal you want to not run into in the Nile is the cute and bumbly, hungry, hungry hippo. Uh, Hippos are funny animals. Like we, we sort of like, we put these in like our baby nurseries. Like, aren't they cute? You know, like not real hippos, but like little stuffed animals, plush and nice and stuff. And they're, they are like man-killing machines. I mean, they're aggressive and they're nasty and they're mean. Uh, interestingly, hippos are not common now uh, in the Egyptian Nile uh, as much as they were. But in biblical times, they were very plentiful. In fact, the, the Egyptians... Uh, made hippos sort of synonymous with chaos. That was like hippo equaled chaos. And you could probably guess why. I mean, you're not going to stop an angry hippo. You're just going to try to get out of its way. And the pharaoh's sign of power and their ability to sort of control the world around them was whether or not they were able to hunt hippos. That was actually a thing in that biblical culture. So just thinking about this, this incredible account of a baby being left in a place like this, and for those of us who are living out our first world realities, like we, we haven't even imagined uh, a scenario like this. Now, I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to read slowly a passage. Don't run by this. We're going to cover a lot of scripture in a relatively short amount of time during this series. But there is a skill to reading slowly and not running past the things that we know simply because we've read the story before or because we know how it ends. Specifically, I'm going to ask you today to stay in real time with the pain of this moment. I mean, can you really get your mind around what it would have been like to be a parent in this situation? The fear of daily knowing that if your baby cries too loud or makes too much of a scene and the secret is revealed of his existence that there's a very likely chance that he's going to be ripped out of your home, ripped out of your arms, and thrown into the crocodiles. I mean, can you imagine? I can't imagine that. Can you imagine the sense of loss in the moment of this story where the mother of Moses decides so painfully, I imagine, I can't keep this baby hidden anymore. And I gotta take this child that I'm caring for and raising, about three months old, so it's bonded and together. We are a family. He's a, he's a part of this family. And I have to take a part of this family as if I'm taking a part of my own beating heart and I'm gonna put it in this basket and I'm gonna trust God for a miracle because I have nothing else to really bank on. Can you imagine the pain of that kind of moment? I can't. I really can't. But I try to pause and read slowly. And what I realize as I read through the story of Moses, this kind of interesting origin story, the overcoming of impossible circumstances is a real thing. That God's plan is not thwarted by family disruption or even the, the ripping apart of certain bonds that I think they all would have wanted to keep together. 
God's plan is not thwarted by physical danger, and it is a real danger. It's babies that were actually dying, but God had his hand on this one to say you're not going to go into the river in that way. The real plan, the idea of God's plan not being thwarted by a loss of culture and a whole sense of being able to send a baby into a different place in a different culture, growing up in probably many ways that third space of not really knowing who my people really are. Moses had to overcome all of that sort of stuff in his origin story. There's also an interesting little lesson in parenting here. Um, I think the lesson goes like this. This is an extreme situation, but I think it stands up. Our job, those of us who are raising kids, our job is not to hold on to them forever. Our job is essentially to prepare them as best as we are able by God's grace, prayerfully and with, a, with the wisdom that he would give, so that they would be ready to go out into the world, including all of the dangers that the world would bring. Now, this is obviously an extreme, extreme case, but that is what we are called to do. We prepare our children for the world, and then we let them go out into that world. It just so happens for Moses' mother, this was a very, very painful letting go because she had no idea what God was ultimately going to do. Um, we prayed a few moments ago you are El Roy, the God who sees me. And I do believe that to be seen, even in our world of pain, is an incredibly great blessing. In fact, the way that this origin story unfolds, it looks kind of like this. There's a very strange move of God and an awareness of a big sister. I love the big sister in this. And through these interesting, this interesting sequence of events, the baby's mother is actually given a job to nurse the child and care for the newly found baby that is drawn out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. Now I say that the, 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 the daughter here, uh, the big sister rather, uh, she's kind of a, a hero to me in this story. Note the courage of this precocious big sister. First, she's kind of watching from a distance. It seems that mother has put the baby in the basket, has said, I'm gonna just trust God for the very best. I'm, I can't expect a whole lot more than that. I'm hoping for a miracle. She leaves. The big sister says, I'm gonna kind of keep an eye on things. And then she has the courage to approach the royal family of the king. The big sister offers a plan that will actually save her brother and reunite him with their mom. Now, I just asked you a minute ago to just read in real time. Imagine the pain and the, imagine the joy that the mom finds out when big sister comes back and says, hey, mom, guess what? I got a job for you to do. I mean, can you imagine that moment? I mean, she ha would have had a thing. You, you've got to be joking. How, how would God have orchestrated this? The girl went and got the baby's mother. Um, I also, here's another little, just imagine with me for a moment. Can you imagine the, the prayer life of Moses' mom in the weeks, months, and maybe years that followed after receiving him back, right? There is, a, there is another little piece that part of what we do when we're blessing the next generation is we pray, we, we ask for God's blessing, identity, destiny over the next generation. And, and we do that largely through prayer. You know, we, we pray for our kids. Uh, we pray that they would be blessed as they're raised up. I, I can only imagine 
the way that she would have prayed, and the dad too, in those, those subsequent weeks, months, uh, and even years of receiving that child back. I wonder what kind of platform was being built. I wonder what kind of things were being set in place through a, a desperate mother's prayer and a grateful mother's prayer as she is blessing the next generation because this man has a call of God on his life. This little baby's not going to stay a little baby. He is going to become the man that is synonymous with leadership in the Old Testament. And here we have praying parents. I'm reading into that a little bit. It doesn't say this directly in the text, but I'm trying to imagine, and I'm asking you to do the same as we read slowly. I wonder how she prayed for him. So there's an overcoming of impossible circumstances in this origin story. There's also the overcoming of personal disruptions. I want you to read a little bit more with me. Verse 11 uh, there's kind of a gap. We don't know how much time, but Moses is now living with, uh, with the royal family, and he's probably getting good treatment and good education and all of these different things uh, in his life. And it says in verse 11, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Isn't that an interesting foreshadowing question? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. We're going to pause there. It would seem that the call on Moses' life that is foreshadowed with this scoffing question, who made you ruler and judge over us? That's exactly what he is going to be, interestingly. We seem, it seems that the call of Moses is kind of off the rails because Moses can't yet lead himself and he can't yet lead others and has not yet learned to hear the voice of God. That's what we see at this young adult picture of Moses' life. His origin story appears to end with our hero labeled as a criminal as a murderer, as a refugee, even as a sojourner, and I suspect if he had any sense of calling or destiny on his life, he had to have thought that that's now off the rails and that is now not going to happen. What you may not realize is that by the time we get to the calling of Moses by God, the famous burning bush story and all that thing, Moses and Aaron are sent out, Moses is 80 years old at that point. Now, this actually gives me a lot of hope and encouragement because sometimes you feel like you're off track. Sometimes you feel like maybe I've squandered my best years or whatever. I think what the story of Moses kind of means is that some of you may be just getting to the prime time of your calling and you're going, oh, I'm 80 years old. Well, Moses was too. Some of you are young whippersnappers. You're only 65 and 70. Who knows what God's going to do? But it was not weeks or months of a sojourning time. It was decades and this is very important for us to recognize when we think about our own calling, our own leadership, our own destiny. Every leader has a past. Every leader 
has a shadow side. What I mean by that is emotionally healthy leadership or emotionally healthy spirituality. You talk about like, you've got gifts that make you who you are. You've got certain skills, certain wiring that makes you who you are, but every one of us has sort of this shadow side. There's a dark side of, of how my personality reacts, how your personality reacts. Every leader has a shadow side, and that's an interesting study to get into. We'll do it more on a different day. Every leader has the potential to get ahead of God. Now, I don't know exactly what was in Moses' heart. The text doesn't exactly tell us, but Moses sees an injustice being done to his people. He still had that sense of identity. This is my people, and I've got to take care of my people. And so he steps in, in some ways, actually becoming the liberator that God wanted him to be. But he's way ahead of God, and his course of action is actually not leading to a healthy place, and it's not leading to success. Moses is now, in fact, in hiding and will spend the next decades of his life in relative obscurity. But here's the thing. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. And God's plan was actually just getting started. That is like, I mean, I don't know how you get around that. You got to wrestle with the sovereignty of God. Why this time and not that time? Why do we have to wait so long? Why do you, all of those questions are real human questions that we ask, and I can't give you a satisfactory answer to most of them except to say he's the God who sees. And in his time, he makes the call, and he calls the leader, and he sets his people free. Overcoming personal disruptions will be a part of your journey. Some of you are young in your journey. You're just getting started. The ceiling, you have no idea how high the ceiling is for where you're going to go and what you're going to do, what you're going to accomplish. And that's sort of an exciting, although sometimes scary as well, place to be. You don't fully know. Some of you are at a place where you're convinced that maybe the best years of your life are behind you. Some of you are at a place where you would say, I'm off the rails, I'm not even really sure where God is in my life right now. But he is the God who sees. So you might have to wrestle with that. You gotta do some business with the sovereignty of God. I don't know how, how Moses was wrestling in that time, but I do know this, and this is our conclusion, that in verse 23 of Exodus 2, it says this. During that long period... The king of Egypt died. Which king? We don't know. Which king succeeded him? Was, we don't know. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. Here's the bottom line that we see here. The bottom line is in Exodus 2, 24, 25, God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. And we actually end this service here with a reflection of what God was setting in motion at that point in history and the fulfillment of what God's freedom would bring that today we celebrate in Christ. Here's the thing that just struck me. It's just so amazing when you really read it slowly and you go through where they are. The Israelite people are crying out to a God 
that they don't really know yet. Like you're thinking about the Old Testament depiction of God as if the Old Testament uh, has been written, as if the, the Ten Commandments have been given, as if the law has been spelled out, as if the tabernacle has been built. And guess what? None of that stuff has happened yet. They don't even know his name because that hasn't even been fully revealed. And they're crying out to a God that they really don't know. The picture of a God from this point in his story forward becomes much less obscure and increasingly clear as he reveals his name. I am who I am. That's an interesting way of being. As he reveals his plan, as he reveals his power, as he reveals his relationship with his people, all of these things are going to become increasingly better defined and all the way to, listen now, all the way to the time of Christ where the gospel of John says it this way, the word became flesh, he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. Now, just get that picture in your mind. That's new covenant reality way over here. The Israelite people way over here, they don't even know who God is yet. But throughout this journey, he's going to reveal so much of himself that we have come to learn and understand. We're going to do uh, a time of communion uh, to celebrate that new covenant reality. All that God was, was pointing to was going to be culminated in the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work for us. So I want to ask um, our worship team, if you guys would join us up on the platform. They're just going to lead us through a little bit of worship while we take communion. Um, we're going to pray and give you some space to just do some business with the Lord. Um, what do we do in communion? Well, we, we ask the Holy Spirit to, to examine our hearts. Um, he always shows me something. Anybody, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, he always shows me something. When I say, Lord, is there, is there stuff that I need to deal, some business I need to deal with you? Like, he always, that's, that's how I have proof that God speaks. I have proof that God speaks and that I'm a mess all at the same time. That's good, right? That's good news. We come to the communion table with our mess. Um, so if, if you have business you need to do with the Lord, sin that needs to be confessed, uh, things that, that you just, you do that business, that's on your own. Um, and then what do we do? We, we remember the finished work of Jesus for us. Communion was built off of Passover. At this point, Passover hasn't even happened yet. You see what I'm saying? Like we have a much better, a clearer view of who God is today. So when we come to the communion table, we're remembering the broken body of Christ, the blood of Christ shed for us. And that makes us humble. Uh, for those of us who are in Christ, you know, we, we can just simply say, Lord, I just, I just received this relationship all over again that you've called me to. For those of us who are kind of wandered and far away from the Lord, this is a wonderful opportunity to say, Lord, I'm coming home, coming back to what you've called me to. To those of us who have never made a commitment to Christ, this can be the day where you say, Lord, the, the body of Christ broken for me. I receive that. The blood of Christ shed for me. I receive that. I confess my sin before you. I receive the finished work of Jesus on my behalf. That's the opportunity we have. So let's not miss the opportunity to encounter him uh, in worship. I want to read this scripture for you. Uh, in fact, let me, let me pray first, and then we'll just give you some time, and then as the worship team leads, you'll, you can make your way to the, to the tables. In fact, those who are serving, if you guys would come now, make your way up to the, 
to the stations. That would be good. Okay? Um, Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you're the God who sees us. Thank you that you're the God who overcomes incredible obstacles. Thank you that you're the God who overcomes personal disruptions. Thank you that you're the God who knows right where we are today. So I pray that as we make our way to the communion table, Lord, that you would give full freedom of your Holy Spirit. Lord, our hearts are open to you. We don't want to hold anything back. Lord, if there's sin and stubbornness, things that we're holding on to, God, we confess that before you. We pray that you would do some heart surgery in us today. If there's uh, ways that we've offended you or one another, ways that our thoughts or our actions or our attitudes have not reflected you well, ways in which we haven't loved our neighbor as ourself or loved you with our whole heart. Lord, I feel like that's the story of my life. So your grace applied to me daily and your grace applied to us daily. We receive that fresh and anew.